0: Well let's go ahead and pray and uh, we'll begin uh, First John here this evening. Lord we thank you that you've given us your word. It is a light uh, that uh, gives us understanding of the true light uh, and the word and so we're thankful that uh, you've given us uh, your, your scriptures and we pray this evening as we look at this book that we understand w- what it's doing and why it's arranged the way it is. Uh, there's a purpose behind this and uh, that we would be more effectively be able to use it, but also for our own encouragement and strengthening uh, when it comes to our understanding of our faith. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your Son, and in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in uh, the final stretch when it comes to books of our Bible. You know, once you start to getting to the New Testament and you start hitting 1st, 2nd, 3rd, you know, 1st, 2nd, Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, John, you know, you're, you know you're getting close. And uh, so we're, uh, just by me figuring it out, I think we'll be done by the middle of December uh, with the book of Revelation. So it's taken us pretty much the year, the, the year to get through this and we're finally getting through it. First John, uh, we are here and uh, with this book. And uh, the one thing that I have to kind of say is that you kind of wonder: is this really First John, Second John, or Third John? I don't know time-wise the order, uh, but this one has always been placed first because it is the largest of the letters that John wrote. Now, the author, as you have in your notes, is John the Apostle. Okay, um, you start off the letter, and it starts not in a way that you typically think of old uh, greek letters uh, they start off with the name of the person and we have none of that to start the letter off but when you read it you kind of go okay this has to be someone who was around christ first john 1 verse 1 says this that which was from the beginning which you think about how john starts his book in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god same so he's he's giving hint okay you know, here's that phraseology, but this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which you've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life, that life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father, the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. So you understand as you read this. This author has the you know the ability, and in, in when he would have been writing this, about eighty five to 95 AD is when they think that he wrote this, so you're now talking almost 50 years after Christ had been on the earth, 55, that's a whole generation of people wouldn't have seen Christ, but he says, listen, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. Think about this, John's the one that is leaning on his breast at the Last Supper. Okay, he's next to him and leaning up there and they laid and whatever, he's there. Okay, that's John there are many themes in this letter that are found in john's gospel we're going to go through some of these themes that are uh repeated in both of them but uh they're there light love you know these type of things the word um and so you kind of get that and then all the early church fathers connected this letter to john and even people who actually lived in the time of john And made it into the second century, which is after 100 AD. Uh, These individuals attributed this letter and said this was written by him, even though we don't have his name here. So it's not as easy as the other letters because those are, you know, identify who it is. This one, you're just kind of going, oh, okay, in the beginning, oh, he talks about the word, fellowship with the son. Okay, oh, all right, this has got to be John. And uh, that uh, is the author of this, and that's how we get to that. Time written. Letter does not uh, state any specified group as receiving this letter. Okay, we we don't have, like Peter's letter, we're writing to those churches on the northern coast of Asia Minor, uh, Bithynia and places like that. Uh, There's none of that uh, type of thing. But we do know that at this time frame, 85, 95, uh, he suffers some different things as far as imprisonment, but that's because he's kind of the chief person at Ephesus, but he's going around to other churches. Um, he's probably, you know, he's an overseer because he's an apostle, and so he's going and seeing the churches and visiting them and doing this because he is an apostle, though who's old at this time. And in his going around, he's writing to encourage believers, okay, and the salvation that they have and how they can be solid in their uh, understanding that they're safe, they're saved, uh, as we might put it. But he's also warning about something that he's seeing in the church. And we'll get into that as we go along here. And so it's kind of a, um, you know, a letter that's a general letter, generic letter, but it's stuff that he's seeing in almost every church he's going to. Uh, He would have written this about 85, 95 A.D. 95 is when most people think that he died. Uh, Most of them think that he wrote the book of Revelation just before 95 A.D. and that all of his other books were written before that time. But somewhere in that time frame, probably written there. Now, this is one thing that is hard for people to kind of accept. 1 John... Is a book that is almost impossible to outline. I remember about 15 years ago, I went through the book of 1 John with the teens, and I was trying to, before I went through it, to outline it and go, okay, can I get some kind of structure that I can work with? Now, there are, you know, you go through, and there are some sections that are talking about love, and there are some sections that are dealing with this. But as far as an outline and a direction, it's very hard to explain what's going on. What we do have when you read through the book of John is themes that seem to, as you go through the book, to be repeated again and again, and he comes back to it again. Um, some have described this as kind of being a cyclical book, a book that is going to come back again, and it comes back to the same theme again, and comes back to the same thing again. Um, it seems to have this type of thing, but if you look at any commentators, you'll find out all their outlines are different. You know, typically when you go through, you can go, okay, here's the outline, and they, they may have it differently, but they know the breakpoints. You know, you can kind of see that it's not that way with John. This letter of 1 John is more of a pastoral, almost informal type of conversation. He's talking, and he's kind of coming back to themes again and reminding uh, these people, and um, it's I don't want to say it's folksy, but it's more conversational. It's not that he's getting up there and preaching. It's he's he's bringing things up that are on his mind, and then he kind of brings up another aspect of that later on, and then brings up another aspect of that, and finally gets to that. Um, So it's it doesn't really have a specific outline. I mean, you can come up with one and say, I think it comes but you're going to have other people go, you know, there's this and this that kind of, it's just kind of a pastoral talk. As a pastor, I do this sometimes. There are occasions where I get up and there's things on my mind and there's passes of thing and you talk and there's not an outline there, but you, you finally, after a time, you've covered all the points you need to and you're, you know, oh, I remembered something I needed to talk about back then, so let's bring it up here. That's what you have. But this is kind of interesting because this is Holy Spirit inspired too. So it's not just him wandering on rabbit trails and whatever else like sometimes we you know might do in conversations. He is um, doing this in inspired ways so the repeated themes indicate some of the purposes for the letter, and I'm not going to give you an outline. Because what you ought to do is, if you see a theme, you got to go, okay, so how, how does he talk about this throughout? Now, How does he talk about light and darkness? Okay, he talks about light and darkness here, talks about light and darkness here, talks about light and darkness here. Now, when does he talk about love? Well, he talks about love in this section, in this section, and this section. And you could, you could study John that way um kind of what keeps it together is if you can understand okay here's some of the themes and here's what his purpose is why why did he feel like he needed to write this letter and you're going to see it as we go along here so this is one of the few times i'm just going to say no outline i'm just going to say here's how we're going to deal with this we're going to deal by themes and purposes What are some of the things he keeps talking about, and what might be the reasons why he wrote these things? So uh, we'll get there. I will say this. The initial overall theme is this. Fellowship with God will bring full joy. I mean, he starts this way. As we just read, these things we write unto you that your joy may be full. Well, you go, how is my joy full? That the fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. You can have that. You can't be fully joyful if you don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you don't know the Father. You can't have fullness of joy. If you're fellowshipping with Him, I mean, besides just knowing Him, you're fellowshipping with Him, you will find fullness of joy. So, that's kind of what you've got here is he's going okay you can have full joy as a christian be satisfied be settled and uh, not be anxious uh, about your salvation you can be safe and know this you're safe with the father and the son and with this you can have fullness of joy now themes of the letter okay one of the themes is this as you go through the letter you will find over and over again a word that deals with knowledge okay some form there's two words in the Greek. One of them is just simply dealing with the fact of experiential, or experiential knowledge. You've experienced something. There are other times where John's going to be talking about you have a factual knowledge. Okay? I have a factual knowledge of George Washington. I do not have an experiential knowledge of George Washington. You go, why? Because I wasn't around when George Washington was around. I did not experience knowing him okay? Um, but I can have a factual knowledge. And so there's going to be this play on factual knowledge that there are certain things that are truth, but there's also, he's going to play on the fact that there are certain things that you just know by experience of life, having gone through life and this. Uh, Thirteen times you'll see this phrase, we know, okay? These are, these are things that the church is just collectively saying, we know these things to be true. Uh, and uh, as you go through the book, you can you know mark it out about 40 times that you have the word no, knowledge, this type of term used over and over again through this book. Now, what are the two purposes in this book? And and so why would he use this theme of no throughout? The first thing is this, is that he wants people to know that they're saved. Okay, this book... Is one when I have an individual who is struggling with assurance of salvation, I tell them, read this letter. Because what it's going to do is give you multiple evidences on whether or not you're saved. It's just going to, you know, I lay it out further and further and go through and say, okay, this is true. Okay, this is true. This is true okay, if you can go through and check all of those things off, or most of them, you're probably saved. You just need to read it again and go, oh, hey, I, I know that to be true, and I know this to be true, and I know this to be true. Hmm, I must be safe. I must be saved. So, Knowledge is important when it comes to assurance of salvation. A person can know that they have eternal life. I want you to turn to the end of this because this is what John states at the end of his letter. Sort of like the end of the Gospel of John. The end of the Gospel of John where he makes the statement, these things I've written unto you. Oh, boy. Now I'm, I'm, I'm looking at 1 John 5. Let me read uh, what the end of John says. Yeah. But these things are written that you might believe in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. And you kind of go, oh, okay, uh, all right. Well, you get to the end of this letter in 1 John. In 1 John five eleven, he says this, And this is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. You don't have eternal life. You may be living and breathing right now, but you don't have true life because you're separated from God. Death is separation. Life is to be connected, unified. So you get to verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God and that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. You want to know you've got eternal life? I wrote all these things so that you could know you have eternal life. You've got this. Now, what he goes through and deals with as far as whether or not you're saved is a lengthy set of different things that he says, okay? What you have is that if you have a person reading through this, here are some of the questions one can ask themselves reading through the book of John, whether or not they're saved, okay? And this list is not my list. I borrowed this list. Borrowed it from New Testament messages uh, our New Testament survey by uh, Robert Grimacchi. Good little, easy New Testament survey. Okay, have I experienced spiritual fellowship with God and with others? Can I say, there are times I've known God and I've known His Son? I've, I know the fellowship is there, that I have things in common with Him, this one who is God the Father and God the Son. I mean that's the very first thing we read about. Okay. Yeah, fellowship with his son or with Father and with the Son. Okay. Am I sensitive to sin? Now you, you start off first John and it's got these things where it seems like it's going back and forth about, you know, maybe, maybe not, whatever, but it just starts this way This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If I'm just sinning all the time and I have no, you know, we would say there's no Christian values, nothing going on that's Christian in my life, you're walking in darkness. But, verse number six, if we say that we have fellowship with him, or excuse me, verse number seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. You know, I, I I am understanding that I have sin, and I need covering because I'm a sinner. Okay. He cleanses us from all sin. Verse eight: If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You have a person who's not sensitive to the fact that they're a sinner, not saved. I have no sin. <laughs> I don't sin, really. Well, then you don't need a savior. And really, that's what salvation is, is is you going, I need a Savior. He's going to rescue me. There's the idea of being sensitive to sin. I understand I'm a sinner. Okay? Without that, no person's going to be looking for a Savior. And if you've got that sense in you that I have sin, okay, that could be a sign that you are a believer. Have I experienced forgiveness, cleansing, and restoration after confession of sin? if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have there been a refreshing time where you've come to God and just simply said, I've sinned. Forgive me for my sins. I was wrong. And is there not a feeling of cleansing that happens when that confession happens? Have you ever experienced that? You know, that, that's what Christians have. They, they come and they're not getting saved again and again and again. But there are times where we break the relationship with our, our father, we're still part of the family, and we just need to go and say, I've done wrong. I'm confessing my sins. And there is a sense of forgiveness that's there. You ever experienced that? You go, well, yeah, I, I have. Okay, well, that's a good thing. Or how about this? Am I keeping his commandments? Let's go to verse 5 there. It says this, But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Okay, I am keeping his word. What does that mean? I'm keeping what he says. I'm doing what he says. Kind of reminds us of what you have in John. If you love me, keep my commandments. I mean, if you really say you love God and that you're a follower of Him, are you trying to do what He says? I mean, if you love somebody, are you, you know, in this life, are you trying to do things that are, things that are pleasing to them? Yes. So are you the type of person that's going through and saying, I, I'm doing the commandments of God, not just merely out of, you know, got to do this, but because I, I really do love Him. So I want to do those things that are pleasing to him. Am I keeping his commandments? Am I doing the will of God? First Timothy or 1 John 2.17, we'll look at this passage a little bit more in a second, but it says this, the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Am I doing those things that God says, this is my will, this is what I want? Okay, am I walking in line with that? Am I doing righteousness? I mean, we're trying. You're just getting this whole thing. Am I? Am I doing things right now? It, understand this. It's not saying are you perfect, but can you see that there's a desire in you to do what's right? Okay, an unsaved person doesn't have that. Saved person suddenly gets this, and that's that struggle in Romans chapter seven, where you have this fighting back and forth. I got the spirit and the flesh, and it's just it, it, you know what am I going to do? But there is at least in you this will to do those things pleasing to God because you have the Spirit working in you. Okay, am I doing righteousness? Am I looking forward to Christ's coming? Now, you kind of have to, you know, do a hold on that for a second. When you'd sin, were you ever excited when you knew you were going to get punished when dad came home? I was not excited when my dad was coming home on certain occasions because I knew I was going to be in big trouble because I had done something at school. That was a regular occurrence. So, you know, you kind of go, well, maybe I'm not really excited about Christ coming back because I'm not where I need to be at. But in general, I mean, are you this way? Verse 3 or chapter 3. Verse 1, "...behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth uh, us not, uh, because it knew him not. Um, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath his hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure." you know, you may have sinned, but what are you thinking about this? I'm not ready to meet God. I'm not where I should be at. Well, what, what, what does a Christian do? I need to fix that. That needs to change so that I am excited when he comes back. And the exciting part is I want to see him as he is because I'm going to be able to handle that. I'm going to be changed one day. Uh, this is exciting. Are you looking forward to Christ coming back that you don't ever have a sin nature anymore? Mm-hmm. Am I no longer marked by habitual sin? Now, that's not to say that we still don't have habits of sin, but have habits of sin changed? You know, are there things now that check you when you are sinning that you're going, this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing this. What can I do to fix this? Unsaved person doesn't have that. They just go on. The only thing that stops them is consequences of their sin. There's some sort of punishment brought down upon them, but they aren't thinking like this. A Christian, there is a fixing of things that are habitually sin. Can you say that here? 1 John 3, 9. Do I love brothers and sisters in Christ? 1 John 3, 14 says this. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. I don't like going to church. I don't like being with all those people there. Why? Oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Now, you can always say, you are too. You know, you've got sin in your life. And what those people there probably recognize, not always, but they probably recognize that they're saved sinners by the grace of God. And There's only one group of people that if you're saved, think like you, act like you. These ones that are part of the family of God. Don't you want to be around other people that have the same kind of thinking, that are headed in the same kind of direction, that have the same kind of fellowship, that have the same kind of God? Don't you want to be around other people like that? No. I mean, I, I can't really say much to give assurance to a person like this because you read passages like this and you go, that person's walking in darkness. They're not in life, they're not walking in the light of life, they're walking in darkness. So if you've got a person who goes, Yeah, I'm saved, but I don't want anything to do with other believers. Or how about this? Am I free from moral guilt? Or as we go on, you you think about this: Have I experienced answered prayer? Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Have you had answered prayer? God, realize this: God does answer His children. He hears people's prayers; He hears those, but He answers His children. And if we're looking, He makes it obvious can you can you say yeah i've seen answered prayer before okay well that that's a helping assuring you that you're saved do i have the inner witness of the holy spirit think about the passage that's there verse number 24 it says this and he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him or, or that word abideth in the uh, book of john and he and him, and hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he which hath given unto us. Now we're going to talk about in a second uh, that there are certain occasions that the witness, uh, or the, the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit, have you ever had this, when the preaching of God's word goes on and there's something in your soul goes, that's right. Now, you know, down south, you know, you say amen you know and uh, you know and you have that type of thing but is there that type of thing when you hear the preaching of God's word that it's regularly as you hear it saying that's right that's right that's right you know well, where's that coming from it's the witness of the spirit in your own soul because what he's saying is hey that's my word and that's right that's right Uh, when you have the Spirit abiding in you, you have this inner witness of the Holy Spirit that does these things. Or as you go on here, have I heard the word of God and the messages of men? Here's this, verse 5 of chapter 4. They are the world, talking about these individuals that are antichrists. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He heareth, excuse me, he that knoweth God, heareth us. He that is not of God, heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Have you ever, I mean, this is continuous. Have you ever heard preaching and you go, oh, okay, I agree with him. And God uses the preaching. It's not just his word this time. The preaching, the challenge of the word. And you've gone, hmm, that's right. You move by preaching. You challenged by preaching, okay, that that's an indicator of this. Do I love God? I mean, there's a whole lot of passages that talk about love of God uh, in First uh, John. But think about this, verse 19 of chapter 4. We love Him because He first loved us. You say, well, what does it mean He first loved us? Uh, we experienced God's love demonstrated in His Son or His Romans 5, 8 talks about It's commended, demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, We respond to God because he loved us first. And you just go, I I can't help but love him because he loved me. I understand it, what he's done for me. Um, Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ? Okay, yeah, that's an issue. First John uh, 5, uh, 1 makes the statement, whosoever would believe that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat, uh, that begat loveth him is also that is begotten of him. Um, okay, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You go with that. The Messiah, the chosen one of God. God said this is the one who's going to save. Do you believe that? That's what we mean by the Christ, that he's the one that God said, this is the one I've chosen to be the answer. Do you believe in him? Okay. Or lastly, this, do I believe, ooh, do I believe her? Do I believe God's record? 1 John five ten and 11. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He's going this, I am an apostle, I saw Christ, I've given you my word, not only in this letter, but you can go read my gospel. Do you believe the record that's recorded of what you find about Jesus? Now, when you get done with all of that, and there's other things in there, you just kind of go, "Yeah, I, I, I generally agree with all those," and I, I see that in myself. You kind of go, "Okay, I can't tell you you're saved, but you're probably saved." I mean, this this book is written that you know that you have eternal life. God's not up there going, uh, "You know." going to be a mystery. when you die, am I going to make it? I hope so. No. I mean, when you read a book like this, it's just simply saying, you can know so, that you have eternal life. And so this book is written to give encouragement for believers who might be kind of questioning whether they're saved. They've gone through some bad times. They are going through difficult circumstances. Many of them going through persecution. Am I truly saved? Because does a saved person go through these things? Yeah, they do. But do you have these witnesses and testimony that you have eternal life? Now, the second reason that knowledge is important. So we've gone through this, you know, you know that you can be saved, okay? You can have eternal life. You need to know these things. Secondly, it's because you have to combat false teachers. From what commentators can uh, tell, John was battling a form of Gnosticism okay historically it really gets bad in the second century which is the following 100 a.d and that where it really gets bad in the church Gnosticism the word Gnostic you kind of get the idea Gnostic knowledge we get our kind of our term today knowledge but it means to know and what Gnostics thought was this is that they had a special or elite kind of knowledge that they were on a kind of higher level and they understood things that others did not understand And what seems to be the things that they're declaring by their knowledge uh, is the opposite of what we read in the Scripture. Uh, Whoops. Their knowledge led them to deny that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, because you get to chapter 5, verse 1, he says, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, a person who's saved believes that Jesus is the Christ. Well, they're denying, wait a second, that Jesus really wasn't the Messiah. Okay? That, that's one form of Gnosticism. But there was another form of Gnosticism going around, and a group was claiming this, that Jesus had not been born in, or that Jesus was not born in the flesh. Okay? Uh, 1 John 4, 2, and 3, it talks about this. It simply says this, hereby we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth not Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is, of, or is excuse me, read that wrong every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of god and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of god and this is that spirit of antichrist whereof we have heard that it should come and even now already is in the world okay there is a spirit of antichrist that's looking to replace christ with something else okay the the, the word antichrist can mean anti you know I'm anti something okay great you're against something But the funny thing about that Greek word is it can mean also in place of. So when we have the final Antichrist, he's against Christ, but he's there in place of Christ. This is why he's doing miracles and signs and wonders and he's demanding that people worship him and he's doing all these wonderful things and he's a replacement for Christ. Well, here you have individuals that are attempting to replace Christ with another kind of Christ. Uh, They're saying that uh, the Gnostics would uh, have this as far as some of their thought pattern. Um, They thought that Jesus was some kind of spirit while others thought that Jesus was born and then God the Son took over his person so there was two types of thoughts there that, okay, Jesus came down, he wasn't born of a virgin, he walked around, it's like the Old Testament theophanies where he's not you know, bodily there, but he, you can see his shape and form and he's there talking and whatever, uh, and it was kind of a theophany, but he wasn't born, didn't have human flesh. There were other Gnostics that just simply said this, okay, there was a person born by the name of Jesus, but after he was born, then the Son of God came and took him over. So it wasn't that the Son of God was born into this world. It was that you had somebody who was born and then the Son of God kind of takes over this individual and has them and uses them. And then, you know, they kind of really didn't have a good explanation of what happened after, you know, after that, um, that he really wouldn't have died so that when Jesus died on the cross, the Son of God wasn't there because God can't die. So um, So you had this... These theologies going around that were false, and, and Paul or excuse me, John says, Listen, you need to know what the truth is, so that you're not taken by these individuals who are going around claiming an elite knowledge. You don't have to have elite knowledge. You have this stuff in the witness of God's word, from the testimony of people who saw Christ, you have this, uh, you don't have to be taken. Now, themes or phrases that are found in the Gospel of John that are also found here. Love, life, light, and life in contrast to darkness. So you have darkness a lot. Word, world, commandment, abide. It's oftentimes translated here and remain uh, in 1 John. Uh, Believe, Father, Son, Spirit. I mean, these things are just... You know stuff that was in John. You have it here, and you can kind of. uh, And some people have done this; they just kind of follow the theme through the Gospel of John and go right into this letter and just go. You know, what's more information? You know, how is Jesus the light of the world, and what's the world like in contrast to darkness? So there are themes and phrases. As I said, it's a good study to way way to read John is to go through and just take a theme and say, okay, let me read through the five chapters here and see where it talks about this what's being emphasized about this theme. Now, one purpose of the book is to challenge believers to sin less, okay? Not to be sinless, okay? That's wrong. But to sin less. To strive for this. Um, The attacks of the false teachers... And living in the world had drawn believers back to living like their old life. To live as a friend of the world was to place a person in opposition to God. Okay, here's this passage that you have heard at one time in your life or another. 1 John 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world... For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Okay, so a person who's going to be abiding with God forever is one who's going to recognize there are things in this world that are going to appeal to my flesh. You know, those three traitors that I have inside me. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And this world is going to yank on those all the time. And there are times where I'm going to give myself to that and people are going to look at me and go, is that person really a friend of God? Look at how they're living. That's what the world does. The world gives them, their world, the world gives themselves to those things. Christians should never, I mean, it's not that we never do anything in this world. I don't do anything in this world. Don't go anyplace. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. It's that I'm not given to those things in the world. I may do certain things and be a part of certain things, but that's not what I'm giving myself to because I realize those things are going to disappear. They're going to fade away. They're going to be destroyed. Uh, To consume my whole life with that when there are eternal things I could be doing, things that have lasting, eternal impact, hmm, maybe I should be giving myself more to those things and those things that will fall apart. And so that's what's going on in this church is that uh, these churches is that these individuals are kind of consuming themselves, burning themselves on these things here, burning themselves out on these things here, rather than going, you know what, I'd be doing what really pleases God. Maybe I should be doing more of that. Um... Even the end of the book reminds the believer that the whole world is in darkness and to keep oneself from idols. It's kind of a, really a, you get to the end of the book and you're just kind of like, you know, it doesn't make sense how it ends, but look at verse 19, it says this, we know that we are of God, the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given an understanding that ye may we may know him that is true, and that we are in him that is true, even Jesus, or excuse me, the Son of Jesus Christ, or excuse me, even in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God in eternal life. Then all of a sudden, little children, keep yourself from idols, amen. What? He hasn't even mentioned idols the whole book. But realize that the world that these people lived in, everything revolved around idols. The whole culture did. Temple's everywhere. And he's just simply saying, hey, watch out. They got a lot of things that go on with that, the parties that go on with this, the festivals that go on with this, all these activities. Don't don't be taken by this because that's the stuff that's passing away. It's not eternal, uh, and it's not good. So lastly, you have this. Another purpose is to remind believers to display love to one another. Okay, how are people going to know that we're followers of God, that we have love one for another? Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 makes a statement, "...he that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even so now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there's none occasion of stumbling him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, walketh not, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes." But then you have that great passage that just kind of goes from chapter 4 and verse 7 all the way to chapter 5 and verse uh, 3 where it's just talking about love and different aspects of this. Verse 7, chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him, here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. You say, how do people know about God? It's because we display the love of God. I mean, that's what it's saying. No one's seen God, but can they see God? And the answer is yes. You love one another as believers. I mean, this is the trait that as historians were writing and Roman, uh, Roman historians were writing and they were talking about Christians uh, and this, they talked about, see how they love one another? The world recognized that. They may not agree with them, don't like what they have to teach, and you know, f- figure them to be bothersome, but as far as the relation to each other, there was a selflessness. You could tell. And for John, he says this ought to be the case. Believers experience the love of God and the propitiation of Christ. He loved us before we loved him. A person who has experienced God's love at salvation has no problem reflecting love for God or his people. A person who does not love God's people. You know, once again, not a part of God's people. Okay, there, there ought to be a special bond between believers and it's because we know the love that's been given to us. And we easily ought to be able to reflect it amongst each other. Do we love people in the world too? Yes. But it ought to be easiest here in the church body and reflected that way uh, amongst believers, uh, and they ought to see it that way. So that's another real purpose. that It seems to be one of the themes that he he drags out for a lengthy amount of time as you go through the letter. So, you know, there's a lot of other things you can study from this book, but uh, yeah, it's just, you know, you find the themes, you kind of run with it, Um, but as we said, we gave you some of the themes, but why he might have written some of these things, some of the purposes for it. Um, But it's a good book. If you do struggle with your salvation, read through this book. You'll find that joy because you'll be going, yeah, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. And if it's not true, you go, well, what's missing? I don't know Christ as my Savior. And then you find that fullness of joy and you go, okay, yeah, I see these things going on. So uh, it's a wonderful book uh, to gain strength, assurance, security that you know God. Lord, we thank you. For this book, it has been for some in this room a, an encouragement, a strengthening in times where things are very dark and hard and uh, frustrating that they've been able to look at this book and just be comforted by the fact that they're saved. And so, Lord, there may be some here this evening that this is just the, the type of thing that they needed that they could find rest for their soul, that they know the Son and that they know you, the one true God. So Lord, we love you and thank you for your word, the comfort it gives, and we praise you and your son. Amen.